everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. It is March 15th, 2023. We have so very much to talk about tonight. It's uh, for anybody who's been a regular follower of the show. You probably know we uh, it's been a bit of a different week for us here. Uh, because on Sunday, instead of our regular live show, we had our fascinating conversation with Dr. Dwayne Bratt, D-U-A-N-E, for the record, uh, where we discussed the new book that he edit- edited called Blue Storm, The Rise and Fall of Jason Kenney. If you haven't caught that episode yet, definitely recommend that you uh, you take a little time, you check it out. It's a, it's a very good conversation, not only because we get into the book, how it's created, what it's about, the kinds of topics that it tries to cover, all of that sort of thing, but we also talk about uh, the next provincial election. We talk about the, the Daniel Smith situation. We talk about uh, what the NDP maybe needs to be doing in regards to strategy, and we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight for sure, because yikes on bikes. Um, but the very first thing that we have to, uh, we have to address is, uh, we got to talk about some of the events of the, the last week. So to start with, let's talk about the big news that dropped. We've been talking about it for, um, quite a while now. And that subject is what we what we colloquially refer to as Daniel Smith's drug problem. And what we're talking about when we talk about Daniel Smith's drug problem is the fact that way back in December, at the beginning of December, when there was a bit of a crisis going on in regards to the um, the availability of children's pain medication, but more importantly, fever medication, there was a shortage. And it wasn't just a shortage in Calgary. It wasn't just a shortage in Edmonton. It was a nationwide shortage. A lot of different reasons for it. A lot of problems with the supply chain. The federal government was talking about the fact that they were working hard to get that addressed. But for one reason or another, Daniel Smith decided that it's time to own the feds. We're going to show them how it's done. And so Daniel Smith apparently reached out, and again, this is all documented, and I'm not making any of this up, Daniel Smith reached out to a drug company that was owned by Dr. Oz's mom, because, of course, that's what happened. Um, And uh, they don't make the drugs. Now, this is an important thing to to realize is that when we're talking about the the children's medication that Daniel Smith wanted to get, not only do they not make the drugs, but they don't actually um, provide, they don't have the ability to sell them in Canada. So there were some obstacles. First of all, they had to uh, go through the process of actually creating the drugs, making them uh, physically because what they made were the precursors, so the ingredients, but not the full thing. Then they also had to get all of the approvals to import and sell those drugs here in Canada. They didn't have either of those things. And at the time, back in December, a lot of people went, Ugh, that seems weird. Why would you do that? Especially given that the federal government is reporting that the supply chain issues have largely been resolved. The medications are going to be coming back in. Um, didn't happen for one reason or another. She decided she wanted to go ahead with it. There were some hurdles, and those hurdles have been fairly widely reported on. The first hurdle was they had to get the approval process started. Once they got the approval process started, they discovered that, oh, it turns out that uh, 
you got to have children's caps, childproof caps on children's medication that's going to be sold over the counter. Because the plan when purchasing these 5 million bottles was that some of them were going to be used for Albertans and some of them were going to be resold to other provinces, other jurisdictions that maybe wanted to use these medications as well for whatever reason. Because again, bearing in mind, the supply chain was having its issues resolved. Do with that what you will. Um, turns out they also needed to have, especially if you're going to be selling them to the rest of Canada, which is what was part of the plan, bilingual bottles. Because we have two languages, official languages in Canada, English and French. If you want to sell a, a product like that, you have to have the English and French on it. They didn't do that the first couple of times around. So the first batch came in a little while ago, but it was only for hospitals. They managed to get an exemption for the childproof caps and the labels because it sounds like it had already been made without hitting those basic marks. So they said, you know what? We're going to get it imported and approved only for uh, hospital use. Look at us. We're making progress. They finally got a shipment in a little while ago. But where things really get interesting is we had the budget. The budget comes with conversations where opposition members get to ask questions of the government. One of the big questions that's been going on is just how much did this $5 million, sorry, 5 million bottles of children's medications cost? What was the cost to the taxpayer? We finally got that answer. What was the total amount of the contract uh, in order to purchase the 5 million bottles from Atabay? Yeah, so the, the uh, and this is on the expense side, uh, AHS will spend 64.2 million in 23-24, which will be a one-time expense. Uh, and total cost is 80 million, of which 15.8 million is spent in 22-23. 70 million is the, uh, the cost of medication while 10 million is the cost for shipping uh, waste disposal. So there you have it. $80 million. People done some estimates. It works out to about $14 a bottle for these children medications, this off-brand medication that uh, arguably we don't need. Now, there's a much longer clip in that exchange. You can find that on our Twitter and on our Facebook where Minister Copping then goes on to say, but we might need it and nobody wants to be, nobody wants that. So we have lots now and we've talked to a couple of places. They've said that they might buy it. We don't, we don't really know. So who knows what could happen? Uh, maybe perhaps somebody will want to, want to buy these, these meds. We don't know. $80 million. Now, the other figure in that that has caught people's attention in particular has to do with the fact that there's $10 million in shipping and disposal. One of the things that a lot of people have speculated about is be, uh, because... Um, because all of these medications were bought in such large quantity that there was a possibility that the, the medication simply wouldn't be available or be able to be used in time for them to be sold. They would expire. And so looking at a $10 million figure, when there's a lot of people who have estimated the, the shipping costs to be in the neighborhood of $1 million, that's a 10% 
of the total figure on shipping and disposal. There's a lot of people who are speculating that this figure is baked into not only provide shipping to the other jurisdictions, you know, you get shipping free when you buy off brand meds from Alberta, um, but also to be able to dispose of these incredible quantities when they expire. At the end of the day, though, the bottom line, $80 million is what we paid for these medications that are now readily available on children's uh, shelves in pharmacies. One other little thing that we wanted to touch on real quick. Daniel Smith did this event. Um, she did this event where she talked to the Alberta uh, Enterprise Group. And basically what they are is they're a, they're a club of business owners who... They, do lobbying and stuff. They, they pat each other on the back. They say nice things. They're all very, very wealthy. Um, Danielle Smith used to be the president of that organization. Well, she decided to have a special little meeting where she was going to have a meet and greet exclusive. If you bought a ticket and you were a member of this organization, you get an hour of free time with the premier of Alberta. That's not sketchy at all. But then she went ahead and did a speech in the speech. She made a clever little joke where she said, Oh, you know, this, this, uh, <laughs> those emergency alerts that everybody got. We got like six of them. It was the feds. And she continued to say in other places that it was a problem with the federal government not being able to talk to Alberta's system. Well, it came out about today. That's not true at all. That's not what the problem was. It had nothing to do with the federal government. It was a whole other thing entirely. So once again, and this is going to be a bit of a recurring theme tonight. Danielle Smith lies a lot. There's some other big events that we got to talk about. We got like 10 things that we're going to talk about. And we were going to try to open it up to the floor, but apparently the Twitter spaces is not working. Thanks, Elon. Uh, so <laughs> you guys are stuck with me ranting for an hour. Sorry. But one of the big things that we absolutely have to talk about has to do with Oil prices, as a renowned economist Trevor Toom noted earlier today, oil prices have dropped significantly. Um, and there's some things that are important to realize when we're talking about oil prices because of how um, much of the Alberta budget is dependent on oil and gas royalties. Dr. Toom has noted in multiple places that a $1 change in oil and oil prices equates to $630 million in the Alberta budget, up or down. So if the price of oil goes above the projected price of oil that was used to figure out how much money we're going to have to play with with the budget, if it goes up, we make $630 million. If it goes down, though, we lose $630 million. And as Dr. Toome noted... The prices that we saw this morning would have resulted, if sustained, in a $5 billion, that's billion with a B, loss to provincial coffers. Now, this is where I'm going to do another little bit of a shameless plug, because we actually have, this Sunday, we're doing another one of our airing the interview for, for everybody, uh, Sunday night. We sat down with Dr. Toom. We got an hour-long conversation with him where we talk about not only the the provincial budget not only the effects of relying on resource royalty revenue and the instability that it creates like we're seeing here today but we talk about uh, maybe some some solutions 
what could we do to make Alberta's fiscal situation a little bit more stable? I would personally argue that dropping $80 million on unneeded children's medication probably would be a great place to start, but that's just a drop in the bucket. But the point is, if oil prices had stayed where they were, it would have been a huge impact on what Alberta's fiscal outlook looks like. And when we take a look at the last six months of oil prices, it's not exactly a great trend. If you look on your screen right now, because I know y'all are watching because the audio stuff isn't working. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, I promise I have a very fancy graph up right now. Um, you can see that uh, over the last six months, things haven't been exactly stable. They've been trending downwards, which isn't great. And if we take a look at just today's numbers, we can see when midnight rolled around, we saw a big drop. The low today was $66.74. It went back up right before we went to air, $68.38. So that's a slight improvement. But when you bear in mind that what we're talking about in regards to oil prices is every dollar below the projected amount, $70, works out to almost a billion dollars. If oil prices don't go back up and stay up to make up for the difference, we're going to have some problems in this province. Moving on from there, we got to talk about we got to talk about this dude. This is uh, John Carpe. Mr. Carpe, he's had some he's had some problems. Um, it's been well documented that not only has Mr. Carpe been the center of a great deal of controversy uh, in regards to his stance on social issues. Uh, his stance on COVID, his stance on health protections, all of those sorts of things. But uh, he's, he's had some more legal problems. Came up a little while ago that Mr. Carpe had actually paid a private investigator to follow a judge who was hearing a case that the organization that Mr. Carpe is affiliated with, the JCCF, or the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, which is a registered charity, same registered charity, by the way, that Daniel Smith donated anywhere between sixty dollars to $90,000 of some people might say misappropriated GoFundMe dollars uh, for maybe a super sweet tax write-off because the JCCF is a registered charity. Mr. Carpe's got himself into some legal hot water. Well, let's go back to the first picture because this picture was actually taken at one of the anti-health protections rallies that occurred in Calgary. We took this picture from uh, the online publication, the, the Western Standard. We're sorry. Uh, but we took this picture from the Western Standard. And this is a picture of John Carpe. And as it turns out, his son, his son is named Victor. Now, why are we talking about John Carpe's son? Normally, we don't talk about people's family. The, the general rule is if you, if you, are off to the sidelines in the political realm. We're not gonna. We're gonna stay away from that because you don't mess with people's kids. That's fine. But maybe if you're an adult, maybe if your dad is John Carpe, and uh, he has all of this controversy surround him, he has close affiliations with Daniel Smith. There have been allegations about what kind of promises Daniel Smith may or may not have made. Maybe that gets relevant a little bit quickly, especially if. You happen to be a caucus intern 
for the United Conservative Party at the legislature. We got this little tip where it turns out that Victor Carpe is John Carpe's son, and he has been given a job as a caucus intern at the Legislative Assembly of Alberta, which is full of questions. Was John Carpe was one of the big backers of Daniel Smith and her leadership race. All of a sudden, his son gets this uh, nice little internship. There's lots of questions to be asked. Moving on from there, we got to talk about the body camera thing. Because one of the other announcements this week that came up was uh, the province had decided, hey, you know what? We've got to hold police accountable. We've got to rebuild public trust. Right now, Edmonton wears body cameras. That's cool. Or sorry, Calgary wears body cameras. That's cool and everything. Everybody should be doing it. All the police officers in the province should be wearing body cameras. We're going to make this decision for transparency and safeness and all of those things. And there is some anecdotal evidence that body cameras do help to uh, encourage a little bit more responsibility from police officers. But there's also some evidence that suggests maybe not so much. Because the trick is you got to turn them on. And if you don't turn them on, then they don't do a whole heck of a lot in that regard. We've also seen no shortage of footage from across not only the United States, but very much so in Canada as well, where body camera footage shows behavior from law enforcement that is, if not harmful, certainly illegal. There's no shortage of body camera footage that shows assaults uh, and unlawful use of force and all of those sorts of things. So it's a bit of a, a, a double-edged sword. When they made this announcement, we even put a tweet out to this effect where we said, hey, you know what? This seems like a good thing, because if this does help to build public trust, if this does help to prevent abuses of, of power, that seems like a good idea. But we included in our past experience with the UCP government, when we see um, a good looking announcement come out it's usually because somebody's getting paid well it turns out somebody's getting paid because when you take a look at the uh lobbyist registry we can see very clearly new west public affairs in particular monty solberg and that's an important name uh have been lobbying alberta justice and the solicitor general to promote the use of in-car and on-officer video including body-worn cameras, and some other things. Doing this on behalf of an organization called Axon, apparently. Now, there's some things that you need to know about New West Public Affairs, starting with they're pretty much a revolving door for conservative staffers and conservative elected officials who spend some time in government and then spend some time lobbying and then spend some time in government and then spend some time lobbying. Monty Soberg, you'll see as the CEO, he's got honorable in front of his name. He served as an MP. He's been involved with multiple conservative organizations over the years. He's got two kids. Michael Soberg, also working with the, the organization. He's a partner. And as you go through, you find some other names that are kind of familiar. Christine Myatt worked with the UCP government while they're in government. We can take a look at a bunch of other people who have been heavily involved with UCP. Sonia Kant is another example. And who have landed at, for some period of time, New West Public Affairs. Here's where it gets complicated. One of the people who is listed currently 
as a partner at New West Public Affairs, according to their own LinkedIn, is Monty Solberg's other son, Matt. Matt Solberg goes way back in conservative movements as well, way back in government, and in fact, currently works as the executive director of caucus for the United Conservative Caucus office. So let's just be clear on where we are so far. A lobbying group headed up by Monty Solberg appears to have heavily influenced the government in regards to making this mandate that all police officers have to wear body cameras. The son of the CEO, the founder of New West Public Relations, also works for caucus as the executive director of the UCP caucus. But wait, because of course there's more. Because remember that group that we were talking about who uh, everybody was lobbying on behalf of? The U.S. Public Affairs was lobbying on behalf of Axon. You might think, Axon, they've got to be some sort of civil liberties group. They've got to be somebody who's convinced the UCP that we have to have this transparency. This is this has got to be the a, a kind of effort that's designed specifically to increase public safety. There's there's no way anyone's benefiting from this privately, like maybe the manufacturer of the body worn cameras. That would sure be weird. If the manufacturer of the body-worn cameras had contracted a lobbying group whose CEO has a son who's the executive director of the UCP caucus, that would probably not be a great look. Moving on from there, one of the other big issues that has come up quite a bit over the last little while has to do with an oil sands tailing spill. And the fact that it has gone wildly underreported and wildly minimized. This is a really big problem for a lot of, of people, especially people who are directly affected by this spill. One of the groups that has very clearly been affected is the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation. They released a statement where they call out Daniel Smith quite directly for um, minimizing the, the leak and minimizing the lack of reporting that went around with it. And they go after the regulator quite clearly. In fact, going so far as to call in the federal government. This is further evidence that the regulator has lost all credibility. We need the federal government to use all legal tools at its disposal to take control of the investigation and cleanup, said Chief Alan Adam. This is a really significant piece. Because one of the things that Daniel Smith has touted in regards to building these economic corridors is building trust and relationships with First Nations and Indigenous peoples. One of her loopholes that she campaigned on, a lot of people have said it's not going to work anyway, so eh, do what you will with that. But one of the loopholes that she campaigned on is this idea that because First Nations land is First Nations land, if we can just get them to come on board with our plans about building a pipeline and a rail line and a whatever line all the way to uh, Port Churchill, 
we don't have to deal with the feds. Except that's not true. But that's one of the premises that she campaigned on. And yet again, we see that there's just open disrespect going on towards First Nations. But speaking of open disrespect, one of the other things that we have to talk about is Bill 9. Bill 9 is an act that's currently before the federal legislature. And what Bill 9 talks about is uh, has to do with presumptive coverage for firefighters who get diagnosed with cancer. There's no shortage of scientific evidence that says firefighters are at a much, much higher risk of developing a boatload of different types of cancers simply because of their exposure to all the toxic chemicals get released when the stuff that we make burns. There's a lot of jurisdictions that have presumptive cancer coverage for firefighters and first responders. We saw out of the states that this was a big issue that came out of September 11th. And we've seen governments down there do a spectacular job of dodging their responsibilities in regards to taking care of first responders, especially firefighters, who put themselves on the line to rescue not only property, but people's lives when stuff's literally on fire. Now, one of the requests that has been made with this bill, because it's not currently included with this bill, is that presumptive coverage should go retroactively to include, for example, firefighters who responded to the Fort McMurray wildfires. Because there was a lot of crazy stuff that burnt down. There was a lot of toxic stuff that was released. The government's response that would complicate things. So rather than take care of the first responders who showed up to deal with the Fort McMurray wildfires and try to prevent as much damage to property as possible, many of whom left their families for days and weeks, municipalities, like Calgary and Edmonton, rotated in members of their own fire departments to supplement the the needs of what was going on in that community. Because one fire department simply couldn't fight it. Fire departments from all over Alberta, and in some argument, Canada, showed up to fight that wildfire. But the Alberta government is saying that if any of those firefighters got diagnosed with cancer, uh, that seems very complicated. We can't deal with that. It's absolutely wild. On a, on a, on a bit of a, a, a detour from our, our, our planned content, it's absolutely wild to me that at the same time that the provincial government is saying, whoa, we can't, we can't cover people who attended to Fort McMurray because it would be too complicated. The, the, the far right is currently circulating memes that lie and say that the government at the time, the NDP, uh, they didn't do anything. They let Fort McMurray burn. If they let Fort McMurray burn, then no firefighters would be exposed. No firefighters would need this presumptive coverage. This is not an, uh, gosh, we love the NDP around here, because as you'll see a little bit later on the show, we're going to take them out for a walk too. But we have to start having conversations in this province about what we're actually talking about, not inventing 
lies to score political points. And on that note, <laughs> uh, that segue just wrote itself. On that note, we got to talk about uh, a little problem with the provincial campaign. Because there's been, we talked a little while ago about how the rhetoric that we're seeing, particularly from organizations on the right, the rhetoric that we've seen from Daniel Smith, the inaccuracies that we've seen from Daniel Smith, the lies that we've seen from Daniel Smith, combined with the fact that we have organizations like Take Back Alberta and the Alberta Prosperity Project who are just firing people up with what is, quite frankly, bullshit. But they're radicalizing people and they're weaponizing people. And more than a week ago, we said, this is going to be a scary campaign. And it turns out, as we see through a video that's been so circulating on social media, it's already started. Yeah. We're going to respectfully disagree on that. I'm going to go chat with more neighbors. It's totally no, fine. so why don't you want to finish this conversation? Like your party is, is pushing an unproven vaccine sorry, onto people and you're standing here laughing. Yeah. You okay. find that funny? We've got different, uh, I guess you're reading some different facts, but you enjoy your... No, no, these are facts. There's only one set of facts, but politicians have two sets of facts. You, you know, Rachel Notley is trying to force unstudied vaccines on people, and you guys are promoting this? Do you not realize how many vaccines, that, how many people have been injured and killed by these vaccines? And you want to know something else while you're laughing and smiling that I'd like to Thank share you, with you? Thank My you. two sons are dead. My two sons are dead. So you keep smiling about that. One of them I'm died on January. Well, you've been smiling ever since I've been talking to you. You've been standing there laughing. One of them died at 34 years old, New Year's Day. Really he left behind a one-year-old and an unborn child. Sorry. No, no, listen to me. Well, we're going to agree to disagree here. What are you going to disagree about? Whether or not my sons are dead or alive? No, you I'm you trying to tell opinions. you something. Yeah. I'm trying to tell you what these lockdowns have caused. You, you, the amount you're screaming, ma'am. I'm sorry, but we're just going to... That's because walking. you cut me off. That's And it's not to, screaming, it's raising. talk to neighbors. I'm sorry. And what am I? I? Because I don't agree with you? Yeah, you're going to go on you, to somebody else? Go to a different block. Yeah, we'll just yeah, let's, yeah, let's just move, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah go, go push your bullshit yeah. someplace yeah. Okay, else. Yeah. Sure, your communist bullshit. I will Thank never have a great day because my two sons are dead because of people like you. Because Yeah, keep walking and lapping. It's so funny. People dying and dropping dead. Okay, all over the place. No, it's not okay. People's children dying is not okay. Now, that whole video actually goes on for about five to six minutes. Um, and I want to start by saying it's profoundly tragic that this, this woman has, has lost her two sons. We're not going to make light of that. We do have to point out some things, though. Because not only is there a boatload of inaccuracies in regards to what she said in regards to vaccines uh, killing millions of people, uh, we're, we're not going to try to fact check the, the whole thing. There's a couple pieces that are important to, to kind of highlight. That was the NDP candidate for that area who was door knocking and he was confronted with this woman. He tried very hard to disengage. She literally chased him out onto the street and then chased him down the block spouting 
these lies and these falsehoods about vaccines. She goes into other subjects as well in the in the whole video. We didn't want to air the whole thing because we didn't want to have to fact check the whole thing because it's just conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory. And here's the real tragedy in that. Most of what is driving this woman is demonstrably false. And unfortunately, it appears that that has led her to her place where she's willing to even to try to weaponize the death of her own kids because she did an interview with the rebel way before this thing happened where she made it clear that her two sons had died from opioid overdoses. And that's absolutely tragic. And again, we're not going to make light of that. And there are very real conversations to be had about the socialization or social isolation that some people experienced during COVID. There's very real conversations to be had about how the drug supply got exceptionally toxic during COVID because the global drug supply supply chain was made almost impossible for people to access. There's no question that we saw a huge spike in opioid deaths. There's no question that we saw a huge spike in the opioid crisis. But that wasn't because of the natural disaster that we call COVID. That was because, sorry, that was because of the natural disaster that we call COVID. It wasn't because of the measures that were taken to try to minimize the loss of life as we, as a society, collectively navigated that disaster. It is incredibly tragic that her sons died. But what is even more tragic is the fact that there are people who will prey on that and worse, people in positions of leadership who will not offer any sort of correction because it's politically expedient. And it could only be made worse if there was video of somebody who is a political leader in this province being confronted by this same woman with falsehoods. And instead of saying, you know what, ma'am? I understand that you've heard that, but it's simply not true. Instead of saying that, this person chose to sidestep the question and correct the conspiracy theories that were, well, sorry, their spouse corrected their conspiracy theories that were about themselves. First questions I have for you is, have you spoken to Justin Trudeau about the amount of money that he's making on these vaccines that he's forcing on us? I have not spoken to him about that. 70, 70 million dollars in two years. He's and married. I'm not accusing you, but I have heard that you have shares in that company. Can I answer that question? Absolutely. Can I look at you guys Absolutely. Can I hold your hand when you say Absolutely. that? Absolutely. I do not. And it's fascinating. Since that clip has come out, there's a lot of people who have referenced John McCain. For anybody who's not familiar, during a town hall, John McCain, when he was running for president of the United States against Barack Obama, was asked a question that had to do with Barack Obama's uh, birth origins. Now, John McCain could have sidestepped the question. He was a profoundly eloquent speaker. But instead of sidestepping that question, John McCain decided to say, you know what, ma'am, I appreciate what you're saying. I appreciate your support. But what you just said isn't true. Barack Obama is a good man. He and I disagree on political things. Uh, that's why I'm running against him. But we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be sharing lies like that. That is the kind of leadership 
that we deserve. And it's very clearly the kind of leadership that federal conservative party leader Pierre Polyev couldn't muster in a moment where he could have helped this woman. Very clearly, she looked up to him. Very clearly, she respected him. He could have very easily said, you know what, ma'am? I have a lot of disagreements with, with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. I have a lot of issues with him. That's the whole reason why I'm running to be the conservative leader of Canada. Uh, that's the whole reason why I'm running to, to beat him in the next election. But uh, he hasn't made $70 million off of, of vaccines. That's simply false. But he couldn't do that. This is a failure of leadership. And unfortunately, what's happening is the more leaders that we have who refuse to step up and address these issues for these people who have been weaponized by social media, who have been weaponized by fear, and who are being exploited by grifters and politicians who are more than happy to let them continue to believe these things because it benefits them personally. Cough, Danielle Smith. Cough. We're just going to keep having more and more problems. Which brings us to Danielle Smith. Because once again, Danielle Smith made an appearance on her, her little radio show, Your Province, Your Premier, which airs every, uh, every Saturday morning um, at, at 10 o'clock. Um, it's, it's quite the fascinating little, little listen. Um, and it's almost always a, a, a goldmine of, oh, I wish you didn't say that. And this week, we saw no difference. We're going to play a couple clips for you. We're going to start with where she was asked about Daniel Smith's drug deal gone horribly wrong. For full delivery of $80 million of children's medication, but it appears that enough from regular sources has now shown up on most pharmacy shelves. So we're pretty much committed to paying for supply that we don't now need. Could that money have been better spent in the health system? You know, I go back to where we were in, uh, in when I first got elected in October with the opposition saying that the system was on the brink of collapse and that parents couldn't get medication. They were crushing it up at adult medicine, crushing it up and putting it into yogurt so their kids would, would eat it. Or even if someone was away going to Mexico or, or, uh, or the U.S., bringing some back. And then parent groups were, were trying to share it to get, to get some kind of access to these medications. When, when, you have a parent, when you have a parent who has a young child who has a fever that won't break, and they're worried about febrile seizures, and they're taking their kids into the hospitals and, and worried as well that they're not going to be treated there. That was what was on my mind. And I can tell you that we did get the initial uh, allotment for our hospitals uh, several weeks ago. So that gave me some peace of mind that at least if we continued to have shortages, that uh, parents would be able to go to, to hospital and be able to get the treatment that they need. And we will have uh, additional amounts on the on the shelves. Th this isn't a problem that's solved yet. I mean, I, I really wish that the supply chain issues globally were over, but they're not. So we still have the potential, as we all know at this time of year, for another surge in virus. We know that it, uh, other provinces are continuing to have surge and shortage problems. We have been uh, in contact with some American states that are having problems with supply. So we will recover um, much of this cost. I just, I just think people expected me to act. I did act. We uh, had a little more complication dealing with Health Canada than I expected. So we live and learn. I, it'll help us for next time that we need to source something. But I, uh, I, feel, I feel pretty confident that, we, that we've given the parents the assurance that they need. 
Now, there's a whole lot to unpack in this clip. First of all, we need to address one of the things that Daniel Smith talked about. And this is something that no shortage of pediatricians have already tried to address. Fevers are scary. There's no question. And anybody who has had small kids and has had their small kid have a febrile seizure or a seizure that's brought on by fever, not only knows how scary they can be, but hopefully they also know that they're self-limiting and they're not life-threatening. Fevers aren't life-threatening in and of themselves. They're not. It sucks. It sucks to be a parent watching your kid be sick. It sucks to, to want to be able to do more. But fevers don't equal death. And the fact that Daniel Smith continues to propagate this fear around fevers, which is part of the body's natural immune response to kill off bugs, that's a real problem. There has also never been any reported shortage. We've we Googled the hell out of this. And there's never been any shortage of Tylenol, acetaminophen, or ibuprofen in children's hospitals. It's simply not a thing. There's never been a publicly reported shortage of those medications in hospitals, period. Largely in part because hospitals have the ability to compound their own medications. So they have the ability to take those uh, precursors and make their own Tylenol out of acetaminophen and whatever else, the yogurt, to use the premier's example. That's entirely within the ability of most hospitals to do. Certainly within the ability of most provincial pharmacies to do and then disseminate throughout the province. So the notion that somehow hospitals needed 250,000 bottles of this children's medication, Daniel Smith came in and saved the day with that, is absolute garbage. It's simply not true. It's fascinating, though, that she talks about how she was concerned about a surge in virus. Daniel Smith, who has largely decried public health measures, is now all of a sudden about uh, a surge in the virus. Daniel Smith, who says that the government should be intervening in the the public health response, feels like it's okay to drop, again, $80 million on medication that is not needed. But the most... Stunning thing about that clip, to me at least, is the fact that she talks about, oh, you know, we were surprised by Health Canada having all of these requirements. Who could have known unless they had any sort of background in procurement or, I don't know, visited the Health Canada website? The fact that Daniel Smith seems to admit that nobody checked to see what the requirements were in order to get these meds into the not just the province but the country seems to be a stunning admission of incompetence for a project that appears to be one of her her baby projects but that was just one clip from the from the weekend show we got a couple other ones we want to play in saw something disturbing, an ad on YouTube by the NDP stating that Premier Smith is, quote, siding with Russia. This seems to be like mis- or disinformation. Can you offer some insight? Yeah, I think before the, before the invasion of Ukraine, I think there are a lot of conversations going on about is there some way for it to be avoided. And so I, I asked my, uh, the people who, was, who were following me at the time about just some suggestions. Is there some way that, that this can be avoided? And I think that that got misconstrued once the invasion happened. Um, and I think once the invasion happened, we have been standing shoulder to shoulder with, uh, with Ukraine.
that's some bullshit. That is some unmitigated bullshit. Daniel Smith is trying to frame it like she never said anything that was inaccurate or critical about Ukraine's response to the Russian invasion after the Russian invasion happened, except that's exactly what she did. This was a live stream that she did on her locals, just like this pay-for social media platform. Think of it like Patreon. But we don't lock any of our content behind paywalls. It's it's kind of like a Patreon, but but with paywalls, bigger paywalls. Um, so these are some comments that she made on April 29th of last year. That is well after the Russian invasion. And it is well after she announced her leadership run. To be pushing. What are your thoughts about the peace plan for Ukraine, Russia? No one seems to be pushing. Is this one of the is this the older one where Ukraine said that they would be neutral and also denuclearize? Because that should have been the answer right from the beginning. If I'm missing something and there's some new plan, let me know. It 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 would be absurd if you want to try to draw a parallel. It would be absurd for Canada to have nuclear weapons and be allied with Russia and not think that that was going to upset America. So why would we be surprised if Russia is upset because Ukraine has nuclear weapons and has lied with the United States? So I think the only answer for Ukraine is neutrality. And there's been thriving nations who have managed with neutrality, Switzerland being the most obvious example. What are your thoughts about the So here's the thing with that. Daniel Smith's key point seems to be, well, you know, if Ukraine had had known what was good with the for them they would have never had those nuclear weapons if you're going to have nuclear weapons you have to be neutral that's premised on the idea that ukraine has nuclear weapons which they don't because they were all repatriated back to russia after the breakup of the soviet union ukraine got all of its nuclear weapons back to russia by 2001 But rather than say, wow, that sounds like a really complex international geopolitical question. Um, I don't know what the plan is that you're referring to. And honestly, I am not an expert on international geopolitics. uh, So, you know, let me let me do some reading or some research and get back to you. But no, instead of that, Daniel Smith on April 29th of last year decided that she was going to make shit up. And this weekend, it's worth noting, she had to apologize for that. She doubled down on that for quite a bit of time after she became premier. She had to apologize. She had to issue a letter saying, I've made comments in the past. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I stand with the Ukrainian people. It's stunning that she would devalue that apology By appearing on her radio show this weekend and saying, ah, you know what? I think if people are saying that I said ignorant things about the the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that that they're taking comments out of context that I said, oh, well, before I was I was in the leadership race or even before Russia invaded Ukraine. April 29th, 2022, Danny. But even then, that's not the end of the uh, the dumpster fire that we saw on Saturday. 
something on, on this issue, we just have a difference of opinion. Anytime a medically necessary CT scan or MRI is prescribed by a doctor because they think there's something wrong, those are 100% covered. No one ever has to worry that if uh, their doctor says you need this, that, that, that anyone would have to pay out of pocket. Well, but there are some people who like to have sort of a second opinion or like to go on an annual basis to just make sure that for their own peace of mind that they're able to, to access these services. And in a certain number of those, they, they might find something is wrong, like stage four cancer, at which point they get into the queue along with everyone else so that they can be treated. So I, I think that we just have a difference of opinion about whether or not people should be allowed to pay their own money out of pocket to get a second opinion and that level of assurance. And we're going to continue to to press on them that we are not out of compliance with their policy. Medically necessary and prescribed MRIs and CT scans are fully covered and we will get a legal opinion. We've, I've asked the, the, the health minister to get a legal opinion in support of our position. Now, again, there's a lot to unpack in this clip, but it... To start with, what's up with Danielle Smith's fixation with stage four cancer? We've heard her say before that if you didn't do enough preventative stuff, that, you know, you might end up with stage four cancer. She's, she said that people who get stage four cancer, she's since apologized, but she has said that people who get stage four cancer could have done more to prevent it. It seems like she might have been talking about getting these MRIs and other forms of diagnostic imaging out of pocket. But it's still cue jumping. It's still allowing people who have money greater access to health care as opposed to someone who doesn't have money, which is the opposite of what our health care system is supposed to be about. What she was referring to has to do with the fact that the federal government looked at a bunch of different provinces and said, hey, you know what? You guys are not following all of the rules for the Canada Health Act. You're not following the, the guiding principle that people shouldn't be paying for uh, the, the things that are defined in the Canada Health Act that they shouldn't be paying for. And they issued not so much fines, but clawbacks to a bunch of different provinces. By far, the, the worst offender was uh, Quebec. After that, British Columbia was fined 17 million or had deductions from the, the, the payments that they received from the federal government to fund health care. Um, they had deductions of 17 million. Alberta was deducted almost 14 million. Now, this is 14 million dollars that is being clawed back because the opportunity for people to pay for health care things that are supposed to be covered exists. It's not supposed to be that way. Moving on from there. A couple more things to talk about, and then we're going to be pretty close to, to wrapping it up for the evening. Uh, unfortunately, we won't be joined by the incomparable Sarah Biggs, as, as regular listeners of the show know. Uh, she's, on, uh, she's on a bit of a vacation. She's down in sunny Mexico. Um, we're told that uh, uh, on her arrival, um, she, uh, she unfortunately... Uh, had her phone confiscated by her husband, uh, which is good because she's supposed to be on vacation. So we're not going to get the normal Sarah Biggs back and forth, but we do have a little bit of a comms piece that we're going to be talking about towards the end. And I have uh, done my homework. We've reached out to a bunch of other comms specialists and Sarah did send us a little bit of a summation for some of her thoughts on what we're going to be talking about. But before we get to that, we got to talk about Take Back Alberta. Take Back Alberta as you may or may not know, is the grassroots organization slash third-party advertisers slash uh, 
coup of the UCP, depending on how we, we choose to, to view it, um, that has been organized ostensibly as a grassroots uh, reaction to the democratic problems that we have here in Alberta, where they're trying to get people more engaged, which is an admirable goal. Unfortunately, it seems like their grassroots grew more in BC than anywhere, and that they have significant ties to, of all things, the founder of, of Lululemon, because of course they do. Um, but they've been quite active. They're getting more and more attention because they are doing an amazing job of taking over constituency associations for the UCP. They're doing an amazing job of making sure that candidates that they want to see get elected, get elected. Uh, and they are spectacularly organized. This was one of the other topics that we spoke with, with Dr. Bratt on our last episode. Well, they put out a, a little bit of a, a newsletter, a bulletin, where they talk about, hey, the, 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 the cultish leader of uh, Take Back Alberta, is he's doing a tour. Here's all the places he's going to. Um, hey, there's great ways to donate. You can anonymously put cash in the box provided, um, which to some interpretations is a pretty major violation of election law because those are not trackable donations. You can send an e-transfer. You can pay by credit card. Uh, or you can compose a check which I think might speak to some of their target demographic a little bit. Um, but they also talk about who their, uh, their organizers are. Who are the people that you should be, you should be talking to? And there's one name that kind of jumped out and, uh, and bit us a little bit. Because if you're in and near Calgary and you want to volunteer, you should talk to Roy Bayer at gmail.com. And that name struck a, uh, a little bit of familiarity with some with some folks. Roy Bayer's uh, profile, pretty clear. Strong and Free Albertan, co-founded Taking Back Our Freedoms, now leader and Calgary rep for Take Back Alberta. Roy's got a bit of a history. And it's it's worth taking a little bit of a look at because as you as you do a little bit of a little bit of digging, a little bit of a little bit of background research on Roy, things start to get pretty interesting. And we're just going to do some of the highlights of what, what, what we have. Uh, back in 2009, the Alberta Securities Commission settles with uh, a land development company. Oh, look, there's Roy, who agreed to pay $20,000 in settlements regarding allegations of misleading or untrue statements about the proposed Spruce Ridge Estates real estate development project. $20,000 in settlement and $5,000 in costs. That's just 2009. Moving on from there, we can go to 2019, where Roy had a, a variety of, of penalties that appear to have, or at least somebody named Roy Bayer, had a variety of penalties uh, that were, uh, were inflicted on him by the Alberta Securities Commission. Um, under Section 198 of the Act, he must resign all positions he holds as a director or officer of any issuer or registrant, investment fund manager, recognized exchange, recognized self-regulatory organization, recognized clearing agency, recognized trade reposition, repository, designated rating organization or designated benchmark organization, and a bunch more stuff, including an administrative penalty of $75,000 and a costs amount of $20,000. But it's not just Alberta that has some concerns with Roy because the Ontario Securities Commission also had some, some issues 
with uh, some of Roy's apparent business dealings um, that had to do with, again, allegations of funds being repurposed for things other than what they were uh, intended for, let's say. This is the, the Calgary, apparently, we, we didn't reach out and contact him because we're not journalists. But this is the Calgary organizer of Take Back Alberta. That seems not at all something to be cause for alarm, right? Moving on from there. We got to talk about the NDP's communications. And I, I have a feeling that even though Sarah Biggs isn't here tonight, um, she, uh, she would probably have some very passionate thoughts to, to share about this particular topic. Um, because there's some growing concern. And this was summarized uh, again. There's lots of people who have written uh, articles about this. But uh, longtime political reporter, David Klimenhaga, uh, he wrote an article on March 13th where he's talked about the growing consensus that Alberta NDP's communication strategy is failing, calls for tougher approach. Now, it's not just David who's saying, we got a problem here. In the article... He also has um, Thomas Lucasic saying, eh, I don't think the comms are working. I don't think they're reaching people. It's not effective. We're running out of time here. Most tellingly, though, he also has some very real concerns from uh, Brian Mason, who was kind of a big deal <laughs> in the NDP a little while back kind of an important figure. He's he's raising some concerns. We've seen Charles Adler, long-time commentary, uh, long-time political watcher. He's He's got some concerns. Lots of people are raising the alarm about the NDP's communication strategies. And then we had two major events that came out. First one, Sunday night. It's the Oscars. Hey, Alberta. Tonight isn't for political speeches. Well, it is, but I'll leave that to the celebrities. Tonight, I want to take a moment to celebrate all the amazing artists across Alberta. As Premier, Here comes the political speech. I can't wait to bring more of the world's biggest TV and film productions here to work with our amazing local industry and talent while showcasing Alberta's natural beauty. Enjoy the Oscars, everyone! You guys were seriously playing me off? Now, I'm going to give some thoughts based on some comms folks that uh, uh, we've spoken to in the last couple of days. But it's important to remember, if the joke's funny once, you should definitely tell almost exactly the same joke in the exact same way again. Hey, Alberta. Tonight, our province hosts the Junos. Well, you knew that already, but don't worry. I'll let others do the political speeches. I wanted to take a moment to celebrate all the Alberta artists who make our province great. As Premier, Here comes the political speech. An avid music fan, I'll work every day to support our creative industries and create an even more vibrant art sector. Enjoy the Junos, everyone! You guys were seriously playing me off? Let's talk about this, shall we? Because there's some problems here. And I need to be really clear. It's a cute little bit, but there's some things that are important when it comes to, uh, to jokes, to, to comedy. One of them is the ability to execute them. And unfortunately, 
that's not exactly happening in, in either of these videos. So here's the first question that you need to ask yourself. And I know, as I say this, there's probably a boatload of, of NDPers who are saying horrid things in the comments uh, and, and defending the, the videos. But here's the thing. Ask yourself who the audience for those videos were. As has been noted across social media, is the NDP really in that much risk of losing the arts vote? Is that, uh, is that where they see the, the hemorrhage coming from? If your answer to that is yes, then that means that the NDP is actually in way worse shape than even the most cynical pundits are, are raising the alarm. We have ads that clearly, given the, the, the time where they were bought, these were bought during the Oscars at the Junos. It's not cheap ad time. The NDP very clearly has more than a little bit of money to burn. So the question then becomes, why are they paying to uh, put these ads out and being produced in the way that they're produced? So... You're targeting the arts. That's cool and everything. Maybe not the best ad spend that you could, you could kind of put it towards. But here's the other question. And I got to be really clear. This is not based on, to some degree, it's my own opinion. But this is also based on reactions from a lot of the, the mushy middle people that are being courted by both the UCP and NDP and by most pollsters uh, and politicos um, standpoints, these are the people that uh, everybody's trying to get. So I'm going to play one of those videos again. But here's the question. Which of these moments, if you had to pick a moment in all the different little scenes that we have in this video, which seem the most sincere? Hey, Alberta. Tonight, our province hosts the Junos. Well, you knew that already, but don't worry. I'll let others do the political speeches. I wanted to take a moment to celebrate all the Alberta artists who make our province great. As Premier, Here comes the political speech. An avid music fan, I'll work every day to support our creative industries and create an even more vibrant art sector. Enjoy the Junos, everyone. You guys were seriously playing me off? The most real moment in that ad is the very, very end. The first huge chunk of that video and the other ad read as being very badly performed off of a teleprompter. If you're going to have Rachel Notley read off of a teleprompter, you don't want to finish with a punchline that has her ostensibly dropping an F-bomb and having that come off as the most authentic moment. That's not going to be the push that's going to get people who are the mushy middle voters. It's off-putting. And it's quite frankly surprising that that video would even make it to air given that. The problem that the NDP needs to figure out is Rachel Notley, when she's being Rachel Notley, is a powerful speaker. She's sincere. She's funny. 
But when Rachel Notley is handed a script, it has like the inverse effect of what a script does to Danielle Smith. Danielle Smith, when she's speaking off the cuff, is by and large a train wreck. Give her a script, as we saw with the provincial address, she's able to execute that extraordinarily well. Rachel Notley, when she's speaking off the cuff, comes off as powerful. She comes off as honest. She comes off as passionate. She comes off as sincere. But stick her in front of a teleprompter. Stick her in front of a script as opposed to talking points, especially when that script relies, requires her to execute on a joke that requires a little bit of preamble to set up, and it just doesn't land. One of the big criticisms that a lot of people have had about the NDP's communications is it seems to be targeted to people who have already decided to vote NDP. If you are really that concerned about keeping that vote, as I said earlier, you've got some problems. The biggest obstacle that the NDP very quickly needs to figure out how to navigate is how to speak Calgarian. Because Calgary is going to be the battleground in this election. And spending boatloads of money on advertisements that come off as insincere and whose most sincere moment features her giving her staff grief isn't a, isn't a great impression. That's just the reality. I think we've come to the end of the show for tonight. Um, the only other thing that I want to say is, you know, as somebody who tries to trade in jokes and humor, but isn't trying to lead a province, one of the things that's really important to keep in mind, one of the, the things, one of the most powerful moments that I've seen in politics, uh, there was a politician that I used to, to be quite fond of, no longer in politics. Um, but they had a joke that they would do repeatedly. And it was a joke that had to do with fundraising. And they were able to execute on that joke really well. It was campy, but because they were able to lean into it and it was well-practiced and they came off as sincere, the delivery piece is so, so, so important. If you tell a joke badly, it's just not funny. That's just the reality. Here's the other thing that I want to say. Just as a, a little personal editorial bit, because I can see, as I predicted, the comments are, are, are very uh, unhappy. There's a thing that happens when you're talking to people and where the, the phrasing and the questions and all of those things gets to be really, really important. And if you talk to pollsters, they will happily tell you that the format of the question is critically important. What you get in conversation with people is very rarely where they actually land. People navigate conversations with a bunch of different ways, but the biggest one is they try to avoid conflict. So when you're talking with people, there's a lot of people who will say, I will totally support you. Um, but the reality is, They've got all this other stuff that's going on in the background that's complex and they don't want to deal with. They don't want to bring into the conversation. 
There's only one decision that matters in this election, and it's going to happen in the ballot box. And the only way that leaders on either side are going to, to sway anyone is going to be with real policy, sincerity, and giving something people something to vote for. In all of the polling data that we're seeing, we're seeing that the undecided number is going up. Now, it's true. A lot of that is hemorrhaging from the UCP, but it's hemorrhaging from the UCP because the UCP currently has uh, a leader that is off-putting to a, a lot of people. The problem is that the NDP, for whatever reason, is currently branding Rachel Notley in such a way where people who have conservative leanings. And let's remember, as much as the NDP made historic gains in the last election, they still weren't in a place where they could form government. The NDP needs to learn how to speak Calgarian. That's the bottom line. If they're able to do that, then some of the writings that are currently leaning indeterminately or leaning in the other direction may or may not uh, go to the NDP. I'll be really clear. For my own personal bias, and I'm taking myself away from the, the, the show, um, this is just me speaking for me, not anyone involved with the show, I don't want to see the UCP form government. A Danielle Smith government scares the crap out of me. I would love nothing more than to see the NDP be able to step up with a powerful and effective comm strategy. Because the policies that Danielle Smith is talking about, the ones that she's put on the shelf for the time being, that we know she's going to come back to, those are very scary. I don't want to see a UCP government. And for anybody who's familiar with my personal political journey, I got involved in politics to run against the UCP. I was scared of what Jason Kenney was going to do to this province. I was scared of how Jason Kenney was going to radicalize people. I'm more scared now. We'll see what we see. Um, <laughs> loving the comments right now. I don't know who we, we have a new uh, zombie Bart Simpson who has some very strong feelings. Uh, and I'm just going to let you have your, your strong feelings because that's cool. That's part of the conversation. Um, but I really do think if you take a look at what the, the communications are, I was in an event last night where, communications guy I've never met before was doing a presentation uh, about a community building thing. And I asked him a couple questions and his reaction was they should be doing a whole lot better than they are right now for the money and the resources that they have. They should be doing a whole lot better than they are right now. Not saying just saying um, that being said, this Sunday, we won't be doing a, a live roundup like this, but we are going to be presenting our conversation with economist Dr. Trevor Toome. Dr. Toome is one of my favorite people to talk to. Uh, we did an episode a couple years ago heading into the equalization referendum where we talked about equalization. We talked about the fact that equalization payments aren't made 
um, from provinces to the federal government. They're received by provinces from the federal government and how the fact that equalization is, is one of the great misunderstood programs that exists. Um, if you haven't seen that episode, it's worth going way back in the archives because uh, uh, Dr. Jim does an amazing job of explaining equalization, how it works, as well as a bunch of other things. Dr. Jim was gracious enough to sit down with us again. We're going to be presenting that interview on Sunday. Like I said earlier in the episode, we talk about the budget. We make a little bit of sense of the budget. Dr. Jim puts some uh, excellent things in uh, perspective. And he also talks about, again, as we started the show, talking about the resource royalty roller coaster. Too many hours in one sentence. Um, we talk about that and we talk about what Alberta could potentially do in order to stabilize its fiscal outlook. It's a it's a fascinating and the thing that I love about Dr. Toom is that he does an amazing job of presenting what many people would interpret as profoundly dry information in an accessible and entertaining way. So we're dropping that on Sunday for the public, but for our Patreon supporters, it'll be up tomorrow. That being said, if you're not one of our Patreon supporters, you can sign up to be one of our Patreon supporters at www.patreon.com slash thebreakdownab. Biggest benefit is you get early access to our interview episodes. Also, if you stay a Patreon supporter for a little while, you get some swag, depending on the level of, of Patreon support that you sign up for. For as little as 5 bucks a month, you can get that early access. And with it, the warm feeling that comes from... Um, supporting the kind of work that we do it's important to note we're only able to produce the kind of content that we do by and large because of the support that we receive from our patreon sponsors so a big thank you goes out to them big thank you to everybody who uh who's in the comments tonight including the uh the the angry person on uh on the the youtube comments i i spend so much time off of twitter is all i'm gonna say i i don't live on on twitter at all i make a point not to um so uh but thank you for for hopping on and keeping the feed busy thank you every, to everybody else who's been commenting tonight uh sorry to everyone who was looking for the twitter spaces tonight i don't know what happened we tried to restart it like four times and it was just like nope so as i said earlier thanks elon um in the meantime and in between time oh we're hearing some rumors the it's not going to get more boring, folks. It sounds like it's only going to get more and more interesting uh, and dramatic over the coming weeks. Um, if even half of what we're hearing is true, whew, strap in because it's going to be spicy. So in the meantime, take care of each other. And as always, most importantly, keep the conversation going. Mm-hmm.